Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Sabbath School class. I'm Lori Atkins. Filling in for Tim Jennings this weekend. So I'll start with class with prayer. Father, we we're so grateful for this Sabbath, for this opportunity to meet. We invite you here uh, to be in our presence. Um, we want to learn from you. We want your Holy Spirit to enlighten us. Uh, and we want to learn this lesson's teaching us to, to live a life of praise. And so we want we want to be uh, we want to be on board with that. Uh, we know that it's a it's a practice. It's a decision that we have to make to uh, have a heart and an attitude of praise in every situation. So we pray that in Jesus' name, Amen. And just for the sake of the folks listening online, we do have some sort of celebration going on in the room next to us. Yeah, it's a little party, maybe a little a little dancing, um, some music. So. Just know that in the next, hopefully, month or so, we're going to be in our own building, our own studio, that's going to be exceptionally quiet. So if you hear some some ruckus over here. So we're studying Lesson 9 in our quarterly, The Crucible, In the Crucible with Christ. And our lesson title is A Life of Praise. The memory text is Philippians 4.4. 4. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Did you hear any absolutes in that verse? Do you remember when you were taking true or false tests in school and the teachers told you to look for absolutes? Like always and never. Because rarely <laughs> were those true or false. In all cases or in no cases. So... Rejoice in the Lord always. How much leeway are we given there? Any time or conditions when we should not be rejoicing in the Lord? Always doesn't leave much wiggle room, does it? So it's easy to shout with joy, praise, rejoice. When? When is it easy? When we're feeling joy, things are right in our world. We're at the top of the mountain. What about when we feel anything but joy? When we're in the bottom of the pit, at the bottom of the valley, everything's going wrong. Is it easy to rejoice then? Lift our hands, sing songs of praise. It depends on what we're focusing on. Correct. Because the text says, doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances, and it doesn't say rejoice at whatever bad thing is happening to you. It says rejoice in the Lord. Um, his character is unchanging no matter what's happening to us. Yes. That's so well said. And do you think it was put that way on purpose? Could it be precisely the time when we're at the bottom of the valley in the pit? that we need to be praising God, maybe more than ever. Is it possible that praise can transform even our darkest circumstances? Not by changing the objective facts of the situation, but by changing what? Our attitudes, our, attitudes, our perspectives. Maybe even changing those around us 
in a way that encourages and empowers and sustains us right in the midst of our challenge. You know, people are watching. They're watching how we respond, how we react. If we purport to be Christians, we're supposed to have something, something else, something different, something more, something better. So shouldn't that be reflected in how we handle challenges, how we handle circumstances that are less than ideal? We should be reacting, responding differently, don't you think? So I wanted to go through a couple of inspiring examples of the transforming power of praise in some, I think, unimaginable situations. So the first refers to the period of 138, 155 AD, when the Acts Church was expanding and Christians were being persecuted regularly. So this is uh, talking about the city of Smyrna in Asia Minor. Christians were, were being brought into arenas. They were tried, convicted, and punished tried, kangaroo court tried, convicted and, and punished, and they were punished when they refused to acknowledge the gods of the empire. So a crowd demanded that Polycarp, who was the bishop of the Church of Smyrna, be brought before the city. He was a disciple and a friend of the Apostle John, the old Polycarp also was a widely known and influential Christian leader in Asia and beyond. So when he was finally brought into the amphitheater, the proconsul tried to persuade him to recant his faith and curse Christ. But the faithful disciple of Jesus replied, for 86 years, so they brought an 86-year-old man into the arena. He said, for 86 years, I have served him and he has done me no evil how could I then curse my king who saved me? So when eventually he was condemned to be burned and the soldiers tied him to the stake, he prayed and praised God with a loud voice and said, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs, I may have a share in the cup of Christ." For this, I bless and glorify you. Amen. What? (laughs) And he was only one of thousands of Christians who, following biblical characters such as David and Paul, praised God from amid persecution and the trials of life. Those early Christians praised God from the flames, from the stakes, from the amphitheaters full of wild animals, from crosses, from the prison cells, and from the chambers of torture. They did not think about the injustice done to them. They didn't calculate the cost-benefit ratio of their act. They loved and trusted God and did not hesitate to make a radical and ultimate commitment to him. They did not consider it a hardship to die for their Lord. Rather, they considered it a privilege to suffer and die for their beloved Savior. 
they unhesitatingly trusted God and his promise of resurrection and considered death but a moment in time on their way to meet their Lord in glory. Writing about the experience of David, this is another example, as he faced the rebellion of his son Absalom. Mrs. White notes, David had a habit in resorting to singing and praising God in times of trouble, which, if you've ever read Psalms, you're aware of this. So Mrs. White says, a mighty, valiant man, a man of war, a king whose word was law, betrayed by his son, whom he loved and indulged and unwisely trusted, wronged and deserted by subjects bound to him by the strongest ties of honor and fealty. In what words did David pour out the feelings of his soul? In the hour of his darkest trial, David's heart was stayed upon God and he sang. What about Job? Do we have any evidence of Job in a trial, in hardship, in the midst of unimaginable loss, his property, his livestock, his wealth, every one of his children? What did he say? I was born with nothing. I will die with nothing. The Lord gave and now he is taken away. May his name be praised. In chapter two, the great controversy entitled persecutions in the first centuries, Mrs. White describes how singing and praising God gave Christians the most genuine and deep joy, deep peace amid the fiercest affliction and persecution. Like God's servants of old, many were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. These called to mind the words of their master, that when persecuted for Christ's sake, they were to be exceeding glad. Not just glad, exceeding glad, for great would be their reward in heaven. For so the prophets had been persecuted before him. They rejoiced that they were accounted worthy to suffer for the truth and songs of triumph ascended from the midst of crackling flames. Looking upward by faith, they saw Christ and angels leaning over the battlements of heaven, gazing upon them with the deepest interest and regarding their steadfastness with approval. A voice came down to them from the throne of God. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Is any of this beyond comprehension? Is, uh, okay. Fanny Crosby. Have you ever heard of Fanny Crosby? She's a famous songwriter, wrote many hymns that we, that you'll recognize. Blessed Assurance, More Like Jesus, Near the Cross, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, Take the World But Give Me Jesus, To God Be the Glory. She was blind from infancy, and later in life she wrote, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank him for the dispensation. 
If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things around me. If I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind, for when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. Then there's the story of Horatio Spafford. Ever heard of him? Horatio Spafford, also a song or hymn writer. He faced much tragedy and difficult circumstances in the late 1800s. First, his son died when he was only two years old. Then despite him being a successful attorney, a real estate investor, he was ruined financially in the Great Fire, Chicago Fire in 1871. Much of his real estate investments were in the same area of town that was ravaged by fire. Then his business interests were further hit by the economic downturn in 1873, at which time he planned to travel to Europe with his family. In a late change of plans, that change of plans being he was working on zoning efforts that had to do with his real estate investments that got burned, but they decided to send his family on ahead, and he would come later. While crossing the Atlantic, the ship collided with another sea vessel and sank rapidly. All four of Spafford's daughters died at sea. His wife, Anna, survived and sent him the now famous telegram that just said, saved alone. Shortly afterwards, as Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, Just as his ship passed near where his daughters had died, he was inspired to write the words to a song, one he named after the stricken sea vessel, but a song we recognize by its famous course, It Is Well With My Soul. How is this possible? How do you pass the spot where all four of your daughters went to their watery grave and write these words? When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life thou wilt whisper, Thy peace to my soul. How is this possible? How does a person praise God for their blindness? Thank him for not distracting her with sight. How do martyrs sing songs of triumph and rejoice even while they are burning? This is not natural to me. Surely this ability or instinct to praise at all times and in any circumstances is supernatural. And it requires a decision. It requires intention. It requires practice. What design law might be in play here, do you think? If we want to learn how to play an instrument, we must practice. If we want to learn how to be good at math, we have to work math problems. 
So if praising, even in the midst of the storm, doesn't come naturally to us, we have to practice. We have to practice praise so that it becomes a natural part of our lives, a habit, just our instinctive reaction in any circumstance. And only then can praise have the power to both convert and to conquer. This is a quote from Mrs. White that says, And while I adore and magnify him, I want you to magnify him with me. Praise the Lord, even when you fall into darkness. Praise him even in temptation. What? Yes. I honestly can't help but think of a situation that we went through. I'm sure lots of people in this room went through it, but our story was when the tornado came through here, it was just a few streets away mm-hmm. from where we lived. And I had a pregnant daughter two streets down that was hiding in a, in a closet. Me and my mom were hiding in a closet. And this rumble, this sound that I'd never heard before, um, it sounded so close that I couldn't tell if it was on this side of me or on my daughter's side. And that fear that came over my human nature, I was sitting there praying while my voice is literally shaking. I'm shaking inside. And even telling it, I feel the same response because it triggers what happened that night. But after we had prayed and we're sitting in this closet holding hands, I don't know how this happened. All I can say is what is in us comes out of us in a time of crisis. But I just remember lifting my hand up and looking towards heaven in in that closet And a song started rising up in me, and it was, oh my God, I trust in you, and I probably changed the words, because (laughs) let me not be afraid, not my enemies triumph over us. And in that moment, we had prayed, you know, don't let this thing come near us and protect the people that are going through this. And literally, he did. I mean, we could have had way more damage, way more lives lost that out of that but I heard a sermon recently and it was he was given an example of toothpaste that what's in when it's being squeezed is what will come out (laughs) and all I can say is in that moment faith came up out of me even though I was quivering in my voice like that is what was coming out of me just we're going to trust you it's scary but we trust you and because of that I mean can we see how perhaps some of those opportunities are given to us so that we get to practice trust, so that we get to practice tra- praise, so that when we're squeezed, what comes out today is different than what came out a year ago. That's the transformation. That's the transforming power. I also say I found the safest hiding place that night was in Christ. Sure. Well, Always. Not in a bathtub. 
So this quote I said, praise him even in temptation. I think it's similar to the, these hardships. Temptations come, again, law of exertion. If we want something to get stronger, we have to exercise it. Well, don't we want our ability to resist temptation to get stronger? And can we resist if temptations don't come? We have to be presented with those opportunities. So we're supposed to praise in temptation. She says, rejoice in the Lord always, says the apostle. Again, I say rejoice. Will that bring gloom and darkness into your families if you're always rejoicing? No, indeed, she says, it will bring a sunbeam. Who among us don't need more sunbeams in our families and our households? You will thus gather rays of eternal light from the throne of glory and scatter them around you. Let me exhort you to engage in this work, scatter this light and life around you, not only in your own path, but in the paths of those with whom you associate. Let it be your object to make those around you better, to elevate them, to point them to heaven and glory, and lead them to seek above all earthly things, the eternal substance, the immortal inheritance, the riches which are imperishable. Those people watching, they might be our children, might be our relatives, our parents. Scatter this light and life around you. You do that by praising, by rejoicing in all circumstances. All right, let's look at Sunday's lesson. It's entitled, A Framework for Praise. They're praising. They're praising in all times. So there's two basic types of prayer. The first type of prayer, probably the most common type of prayer, is a prayer of need. I need, I want, please. This brings our hearts and minds into the truth of our own helplessness. I can't do it myself. I need help. Our own limitations, our own inability, and our own hopelessness without God in our lives. It's a prayer of humility that opens our hearts and minds to God, to connect with God, to seek God's presence in our inmost being. This is more than just the pursuit of knowledge. Such prayer seeks the will of God in our lives and thus opens us up to the healing and recreating presence of God. Our fears and insecurities are replaced with love and trust in God. We are transformed as we come into connection with our creator. That's the first type of prayer. The second type is a prayer of thanksgiving, worship, and praise. I call this a little less common. Have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed a prayer of nothing but praise? No asking for, no requests, just adoration and praise. It's rare. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So this type of prayer solidifies in our hearts. Love, adoration, appreciation, affiliation, confidence in, faith in God, all of which is also working to eradicate that fear and selfishness and replace it with bonds of love and trust. These prayers of praise and thanksgiving focus our minds away from ourselves, which is why it's so uncommon, uh, and onto, onto him, onto God. 
We communicate our love, our devotion, our reverence, our appreciation, our thankfulness to God. It's exalting God for who he is, not what he can do for you, maybe what he's already done for you, but for who he is. It communicates our longing for him. Our praise welcomes him into our presence, welcomes his presence into our presence. God lives in our praise. You heard that? He inhabits the praise of his people. So when we praise and worship God, his presence comes to dwell with us. And when he does, things change. Always. You can count on it. Hearts change. Situations change. Minds change. Attitudes change. Lives change. Every time you praise God, something changes in you or your circumstances or in the people or situations around you. Even if we can't see all that is being affected, we can trust that it is because it is impossible to touch the presence of God and there not be change. When you come in contact with all that God is, it will affect all that you are. Praise is the prayer that changes everything. This framework for praise comes from really knowing God. We're talking about the eternal life kind of knowing God mentioned in John seventeen three. If we really understood who God is, our praise would be unending. It simply could not be contained. And I'm quoting referencing this book at a couple places in my notes, and it's called The Prayer That Changes Everything. Um, it's an old book. A colleague at work gave this to me about 20 years ago, randomly for Christmas, right before I really needed it. Anyway, I've read it a couple of times, but I brought it out again when I saw the, the title of this lesson. So I recommend it, and it's, it's uh, cited in the notes if, you, if you're interested. So this practice of praise, this framework of praise that we need to build, who's it for? Is it just for us? Is it for the Lord? What's the point of rejoicing always? Blessing the Lord in all times. Does God need to be reminded of who he is? Or do we need to be reminded does God need to be reassured in the knowledge of his greatness, his perfection, and his love? Or are we the ones who tend to forget? When we are praising God, we are demonstrating and agreeing with and becoming like who he is. What's that law? Worship. Law of worship. We behold, we, when we behold, when we admire, when we praise, when we esteem, we become like that which we value, that which we worship. So this instinctive response of praise must become a condition of the heart. It has to become a way of life, a pattern that is woven into the very fabric of our being to the point where it is no longer a decision that has to be made I'm going to praise in this situation. 
because the decision has already been made. You have already decided that we're going to live a lifestyle of praise. What about this, uh, this process of deciding or actively choosing? We've studied that in this class before about how our brains are architected, the hundreds of billions of neurons and the trillions supporting cells and the connections to other neurons that make up over 40 quadrillion interconnections. You remember us talking about that? There's dendrites and neurons and tubulins and molecules and atoms and electrons and I don't understand any of it. (laughs) But apparently within the quadrillions of dendrites with their millions of microtubules made up of billions of tubulin molecules and atoms, they form shared electron clouds. Still don't understand it. But these clouds exist in positions of uncertainty until when? Until you choose. Until you think about something and form a conclusion, a belief, accept a truth or a lie. Your act of choosing causes the electron clouds in various places within the dendrites to collapse. So those clouds are temporary. They're in limbo. They're waiting to go one direction or another. And when you choose and cement a belief, they collapse. It causes the confirmation change within the microtubule structure, which solidifies the memory or belief or action into the brain. This is the process of choosing. When we choose to believe something, it changes us. Whether it's true or false, the choice to believe changes the confirmation of our dendritic electron clouds. This is why we can have a change of heart or a change of insight or conviction of certainty very quickly when a belief or action changes, even while the brain hasn't had time to build new neuro pathways or connections, which is where I live most of my life. I'm waiting for my brain to rewire on so many things. But those pathways and connections the brain builds and hardwires after we choose, that's how behaviors become rote or habitual. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want this reaction of praise? To not even be a decision anymore. It's an instinct. It's a known quantity. I know whatever happens, my response is going to be praise. Whether I'm blind, whether I'm on fire. Anyway, so again, what I'm describing is the transformational power of God in us, our brains have the ability to change. So what has been does not have to be what will be. So if you've had trouble responding to challenging circumstances, 
with positivity or praise. It doesn't have to stay like that. We neurobiologically and characterologically change based on our choices, our decisions, and based on what we admire and worship. So our beliefs initially collapse those electron clouds that store those beliefs. Then as we act on those beliefs, think through and reaffirm those beliefs, recite them and live them, that's when the brain creates pathways, wiring in those beliefs to habits of thinking, reacting and processing. Thus, we are changed and transformed by what we think, what we praise, what we value, what we engage in. Monday's lesson talks about praying down walls and it lists the Israelites' uh, experience with Jericho as an example. What do we think God was trying to teach the Israelites in the story of Jericho by presenting them with what looked like an insurmountable obstacle their own some of their own spies had come back and said doesn't look good some of their other spies had had a different experience with Rahab they were eager but so God gave them some very specific instructions about what to do for six days on the seventh days can you imagine marching in a very large group around a city with walls so high that you can't see, being utterly silent, just blowing some trumpets six days in a row. (laughs) What was he trying to teach them? Were these folks that were eager to obey and never complained and never moaned and groaned about their situation and always trusted God that he was going to deliver them, right? They were all that. Was he teaching them to follow directions? Just to be obedient? Kind of like them, we can be um, hard-hearted or forgetful, and we have to be reminded. And even the story I remember reading about, you know, the the walls falling, but I didn't know they had to be silent. I'm sorry, I'm like talker. Same. Silent the whole way around. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That wall would still be up. And I'm like, but yeah, they were told to shout, and, and they followed the directions. So kudos that they were able to correct directions. But and hopefully telling the story and everyone experiencing it, right? And, and continuing it through their years. And weren't there millions of people? We got like ten next door, and uh, I don't know how you can be. I don't know how a million people can be quiet or silent. The other thing, too, is they didn't know 
well, we're going to do this for six days. Exactly. Day we're going to do something. And, oh, there's a theme in there. We've heard this seven thing before. It was every day. Well, oh, they were told to do the same thing, yeah. I don't think they got the big picture to start. Ever. The day, they probably got their marching orders. And what must that have been like on the seventh day? When you get, when you get, you get to shout, so that's good. But do you think any of them expected what happened after the shout? Eve? Um, I think it's kind of interesting. If, if you're silent while you're marching around the city, what are you likely to be looking at? Right? You're likely to be looking at the walls. Uh, right. You know, and so six days they're doing this, walking around the city looking at the wall, walking around the city looking at the wall. And finally, on that seventh day, didn't they have to walk around it like seven times or something? Yes. Um, and then at the very last, they change what they're looking at. Oh, interesting. They praise. So when you praise, your your focus shifts from the wall to God. Up. Oh. And when that focus changed, God changed it. He stepped in. You don't even have to do anything. Right. And it's, it's the same for us. When we focus on our problems, when we focus on, oh, I've got this horrible habit, and you do this, mm-hmm. right? You can't, you can't change that. To- yeah, total tunnel vision. As long as you're focused on it. Like, I read something, the surest way to make sure that you're going to do what you don't want to do is to focus on what you don't want to do. <laughs> You know, um, it's like I don't want to be like so and so. Well, you just put a picture. Of- uh, exactly, you're headed toward it. <laughs> you know, you have to change your focus, and I think that's part of what he was teaching them. You know, he said, you know, all this time you're looking at the wall. The moment you looked to me, I think that's exactly what he was teaching them. Um, the trust factor that I'm going to ask you to do some stuff that you don't understand. Do it anyway. Do it for me. Trust me. And see what happens when you do. And see what happens when you do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I feel like we could learn something from our modern day Israel. And my next question was what actually caused the walls to fall. And I think Eve is exactly right. If somebody didn't hear, it was not the decibels of their voices when they shouted or the trumpets that made the walls fall. The Israelites who had been looking at the wall for six and part of seven days, immediately when they lifted their heads and focused on Christ and praised and shouted, the walls came down, which is true of our circumstances. And the quarterly said, when the, when God is on the verge of doing something new in our lives, he may bring us to a Jericho. For he may need to teach us that the power to triumph does not come in our own strength and strategies. Everything we need comes from outside ourselves. So no matter what is in front of us, no matter how insurmountable it may seem, our role is to praise God. Lift our heads. Lift our focus. He's the source of everything we need. This is faith in action. I think that's well said. Tuesday's lesson entitled The Life of Praise. And the first paragraph, it reiterates something we just discussed, that praise is something we must practice until it changes from an activity done at a particular time to an atmosphere in which we live. I love that. 
Praise shouldn't be so much a specific act, but a specific way of life. I thought that was a great reference to law of exertion, exercising, making something come, become stronger. Did you know this practice or framework atmosphere of praise is not only for us, us humans on this earth. The Bible says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's in Psalm 156. Listen to this quote from the Review and Herald. It says, while we rejoice that there are worlds which have never fallen, these worlds render praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ for the plan of redemption to save the fallen sons of Adam, as well as to confirm themselves in their position and character of purity. You understand what this means? So these are unfallen beings on unfallen worlds. They are praising, rendering praise, honor, and glory to Christ for his plan, his sacrifice to save us. That's what they're praising him for. As well as to confirm themselves in their position and character of purity. This reminds me of the, the text, the namesake for our class. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. There's something about this reasoning process, this reasoning through that is connected or related to our cleansing, to our healing. There is something about this rendering of praise, even for unfallen worlds, that confirms their character of purity. The arm that raised the human family from the ruin which Satan had brought upon the race through his temptations is the arm which has preserved the inhabitants of other worlds from sin. Every world throughout immensity engages the care and support of the Father and the Son, and this care is constantly exercised for fallen humanity. Christ is mediating in behalf of men, and the order of unseen worlds is also preserved by his mediatorial work. You understand what that means? We have a picture, we were taught a picture of what Christ mediating to the Father was about. Even though we relearned what that means, this mediatorial work is also preserving the order of unseen worlds and unfallen beings. Again, why would he need to mediate for folks who don't have a sin problem? It's all about what we recognize his mediation is doing. He's, con- his, he's benevolent. His energies, his work is constant, not just with this earth, even though we think we're the center of it. We might not be, but that is outflowing always to all creation. Anyway, are not these themes of sufficient magnitude and importance to engage our thoughts and call forth our gratitude and praise and adoration to God? I think they are sufficient magnitude and importance, maybe more so. Here's another quote. Our life is to be bound up with the life of Christ. We are to draw constantly from him, partaking of him, the living bread that came down from heaven, drawing from a fountain ever fresh, ever giving forth its abundant treasures. If we keep the Lord 
ever before us, the law of worship, beholding we become change, allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to him, the law of exertion, the more we exercise something, the more stronger it gets, we shall have a continual freshness in our religious life. This is like, who needs a sunbeam in the family? Who needs continual freshness in their religious life? I do. If we keep the Lord ever before us, allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to him, we shall have a continual freshness in our religious life. Our prayers will take the form of a conversation with God as we would talk with a friend. He will speak his mysteries to us personally. He will speak his mysteries to us personally. Often there will come to us a sweet, joyful sense of the presence of Jesus. Often our hearts will burn within us as he draws nigh to commune with us as he did with Enoch. When this is in truth the experience of the Christian, there is seen in his life a simplicity, a humility, a meekness and lowliness of heart that show to all with whom he associates that he has been with Jesus and learned of him. Wednesday's lesson. It's entitled, it's referring to praise, a witness who convicts. This is implying that our praise can convict us, others. Can our praise transform the eternal destinies of those around us? What was uh, Stephen's reaction when he was tried and sentenced to death and stoned? Did his reaction and countenance and attitude affect Saul? Yeah, deeply, it sounds like. There's another quote that talks about uh, what that impact might have been from Stephen's, uh, Stephen's praise and behavior. The martyrdom of Stephen made a deep impression upon all who witnessed it. The memory of the signet of God upon his face. You know what a signet is? It's like an image. You had a signet ring that has a design or a, something that they used to put the signet rings in the wax on the letter. And it left an impression, an image. He had the signet of God upon his face. His words, which touched the very souls of those who heard them. You ever want to, do you know that your words might be touching souls? Those words remained in the minds of the beholders and testified to the truth of that which he had proclaimed. His death was a sore trial to the church, but it resulted in the conviction of Saul who could not efface from his memory the faith and constancy of the martyr and the glory that rested on his countenance. 
So we have one of the most prolific of the apostles. Probably did more for the start of the Christian church. Maybe than anyone other than Christ. Who was headed down the wrong path under the guise of doing exactly what was right in his mind. And the ability to praise in any circumstance by someone who was woefully, unjustly wronged should not have had anything to be positive about or praise in that circumstance, impacted this man of God. What would have happened if Stephen had reacted differently? If he had not had a framework or a practice of praise? What about in those arenas? Have you read or heard that there were spectators that were there just for the blood sport? Or maybe because they had to come. I'm guessing they were ordered to attend in some cases. But the reaction of the martyrs singing, glowing, the signet of God on their faces under the worst and harshest circumstances, that it impacted the spectators. Again, our reaction should be different. Our reaction should make people think, what have they got? What could possibly be impactful enough to have somebody singing while I'm laying kindling at your feet? That's something different. Eve. I just want to point out, it's, it seriously depends on the picture of God that you have. Absolutely. you can phrase like that. Because if you believe that God is harsh, if you believe, um, even some of the things that I believed, you know, growing up, that, you know, I had this phrase thrown at me, God is in control, so right. bad that happens to you, therefore must have been God. It was his will. So if you, yeah, if you have this picture of God then you're not going to be praising him as much. You're going to be going, what's wrong with you that you would do this to me? Exactly. So your picture has to be correct in order for the praise to become something that you're willing to do even in the bad circumstances. Well said. Yeah. What's wrong? Why are you doing this to me? Or what did I do? Who sinned that this man was born blind? You know what I mean? And for sure, the folks who arranged the arena shows had a different picture of God. They thought they were doing the right thing by trying to get these people to renounce their beliefs and believe in the God and that punishing was a righteous act. So very well said. Picture of God. We know this. What law lends? What picture? It affects everything. I've got a little bit more. Oh, and also... We're going to skip the Q&A today again. Okay, let's look at Thursday real quick. And then I have a quote to, to finish up. It's talking about the weapon that conquers and that praise can be a powerful weapon when a vast army is coming against you. And it lists one of the 
one of the uh, military battles that the Israelites faced. And it lists this text, which I love, and I've said many times from Second Chronicles, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I mean, that could be a singular prayer <laughs> for most of my life. Um, so, and it also talks about that even though God was going to fight for them, they still had to go out. They had to suit up, put on their armor, and go out and face the enemy. But not an ordinary march to war, maybe even stranger than circling the city and shouting. They had a choir leading them as they marched to war. And as they began to sing in praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. God intervened at the very moment they exercised their faith in his promise as they begin to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. Final thought, this practice of praise, we already talked about how important it is for us. We talked about that it's not just for us, that even other other intelligent beings on fallen worlds are practicing the same framework. What about, is it just for now? Is it just for the circumstances that we face while here on in this fallen world, on this earth? Do you think if we develop a habit of praising God in every circumstance that we'll just stop that behavior in heaven? Or will we continue to develop it and refine it and deepen those stinking neuropathways for all eternity? What if we do not develop a heart of praise and thanksgiving while here on earth? Could that impede our progress or even make us unfit for heaven? We've talked about the the pursuit of truth, the love of truth, the understanding that truth is ever unfolding, the understanding of the difference between finite and infinite, and that we will be learning new truth, new unfolding truth throughout eternity. That we ever, if we ever get to the point where we put a stake in the ground here on earth, think we have the truth, there's no more truth to, to be discovered, that we may be impacting our fitness for heaven. It's the same with praise. And I have a quote from the Great Controversy that talks about it. Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high and holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music in melodious strains rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits on the throne. Could those hearts who are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven but they have never trained the mind to love purity. 
They have never learned the language of heaven. And now it is too late. And what is the language of heaven? Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Let's bow our heads. Father, oh, teach us. Teach us to lift our heads, to focus on you, to develop a framework and a life of praise. Let it be an instinct. Let it be a habit. Let it be a natural response to who you are and what you've done for us. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.